I'm Evan Knappen, and welcome to Gun Lawyer. So, you know, I've been watching the news and uh, started thinking about one of these uh, news stories getting attention, and that is the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue in Virginia, the big monument of Robert E. Lee sitting there on Traveler, his horse. And uh, the crowd was there uh, cheering the removal of that statue. And it got me thinking about about some real ramifications there and, 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 and how we are currently looking at history and viewing history. And, you know, we could debate all day long about the Civil War and the effects of it and why the men who fought for the South uh, were motivated or not. But that's not what just, it's not what I was thinking. What I was thinking about is Robert E. Lee is part of our American history. And to some, it might be a very painful history. And to others, it is something that they even in, in ways admire, nothing to do with uh, slavery, but just his generalship and his uh, wisdom on the battlefield and the rest of his career that he had even prior to doing that when he faithfully served his country as well. So there's a lot to it, but the bottom line is it's our history and this is an attempt at removing our history and that's really a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing because if we, as the old saying goes, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. Plus, painful history is important to help shape our country. It also helps shape you as the individual. You know, it's funny because I was thinking about an old Star Trek episode where uh, there's uh, this fellow gets on board the Enterprise that's able to remove people's pain and make them all happy. You know, even Spock gets happy and this guy's like a, you know, maybe he's a hustler, maybe he's a religious figure. doesn't really matter. But he can remove pain. So they go to Kirk and they said to Captain Kirk, look, you know, this guy can get rid of your pain. Let him do it. And Kirk says, I want my pain. I need my pain. That's who made me what I am. And there's something really important there. You know, you're, the pain made us as a country who we are. And we can't just uh, remove it and have it not have the effect that it had in shaping us and making us who we are and letting us learn from it. And so I look at that with the Robert E. Lee statute and the other attacks that are taking place on our history. And I started thinking about, well, there's painful history when it comes even to firearms. There's painful history about our political situation and how we got there. Now, let me just preface this by saying that I am a proud NRA member, benefactor, member, helped do many things for NRA. I'm not anti-NRA at all. But what I'm going to tell you is, in effect, a painful history 
of things that occurred early on in the NRA. And unlike the removal of, you know, the, the, the Robert E. Lee statute, removing this painful history isn't a good idea. We need to understand and know it. And it's generally not really known out there. But by recognizing it, we can look at the mistakes that were made. And mistakes were made. I'm not talking about the modern situation now with uh, the attack by the New York State Attorney General and all the politics going on here and, you know, questions about whether, you know, Wayne LaPierre should stay as in leadership or not. None of that. I'm not, I'm not getting into that. It's not about that. I want to look at the actual history of the NRA when it comes to, to gun control and gun laws. And uh, you may be surprised to know that NRA, back in the 1920s and into the 30s, NRA was a proponent of gun control and actually aggressively pursued the enactment of gun control laws. Laws that to this day we are fighting. And laws to this day the NRA is now fighting and has been fighting for many years to get to repeal and to get rid of. But we need to know and understand what those mistakes were that were made. And it was really done out of uh, those folks being naive. And uh, if you want to read more about this, I would tell you this really interesting uh, article, uh, believe it or not, in the Atlantic, which is a magazine that is generally considered, um, you know, left-wing, lib liberal, without a doubt. But they had an article called The Secret History of Guns by Adam Winkler. And it's a very interesting article to read, because as much as I don't care for, you know, the politics of the Atlantic, and there, of course, is an agenda behind everything they do. This article does have many things in it that are factually uh, true and surprising about guns and the history of guns. And the fact that it's put out by a, you know, liberal left um, magazine and there's an agenda to it doesn't mean that the history there is necessarily untrue or that we should reject it and want to close our eyes to it you know and remove the statue no 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 not a good idea instead we should embrace it understand it and learn from it and so let me let me tell you the you see in the in the 20s 1920s nra was um actually a champion of enacting gun control and that's because at that time it had come over from England where there was gun control being pushed and uh, came across the pond and it was after, you know, World War One, And there was this uh, kind of a naive concept that gun laws could maybe work and go at crime and other concerns. And the president of the NRA at the time was this guy named Carl T. Frederick. Now, Carl Frederick was a uh, Princeton and Harvard-educated lawyer. Uh, he was known as one of, as the best shot in America. And why was he known as that? Because he won three gold medals in handgun shooting at the 1920 Summer Olympics. So he was a good shooter, obviously a skilled 
shooter, and he was president of the NRA at the time. And he was made a special consultant. Now, this is president of the NRA now. Keep in mind. Special consultant to the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws. And in this role, and as president of the NRA, he drafted what was called the Uniform Firearm Act. The Uniform Firearm Act was model legislation that was pushed in the states at the time throughout America with the NRA and Carl T. Fred pushing this uniform, these uniform firearm laws because they wanted to see gun laws in all the states. And, you know, it's shocking to even say it, but what, the, what did these gun laws, these model firearm laws, what, what did they promote back in the 20s? And, and I'll tell you what they did. Number one, is they wanted they required anyone that wanted to carry a concealed handgun in public must have a, a permit from the local police advocating permits when what we had prior to that was constitutional carry we had constitutional carry and the NRA uh, under Frederick pushed to not have constitutional carry, and in fact have uh, permits. And and the standard in the Uniform Firearm Act was you had to be a suitable person and have a proper reason for carrying a firearm. Gee, have we seen any of this before? Of course we have. New Hampshire's pistol permit law required suitable person. And you know who backed suitable person in the 20s? The Ku Klux Klan, that's who. Because that's how you could discriminate and not have those uh, unsuitable persons being able to get gun licenses and carry. This is historically true and painful. But here they're pushing suitable person and proper reason. And of course in New Jersey, proper reason became what? Justifiable need in the, in the bar and the trick to denying citizens their gun rights completely to be able to get any to even obtain the carry license what else did the model uniform firearm laws supported by nra what did what did they say well they they required gun dealers to report to law enforcement the sale of handguns in essence what was it a firearm registration scheme handgun registration Right? Reporting the sale. And and think about this. Reporting the sale. Oh my, what is the New Jersey pistol purchase permit? What does it say? Oh, it's a purchase permit. And guess what it does? It reports the sale. Gee, I wonder where the roots for that came from. You guessed it. The Uniform Firearm Act. And finally, guess what else NRA supported in this uniform? A two-day waiting period. That's right, a waiting period. So here we are. Waiting periods, permits required to carry, handgun registration and reporting the sale. And it was naively pushed, naive, and promoted throughout America through the 20s and 30s. So much so that it's cited in the article that uh, in 1932, 
the Virginia Law Review article from 1932 reporting about the Uniform Act and its success that uh, basically the, the license to carry concealed weapon were in effect in practically every jurisdiction. And since then, what have we had to do? Fight to turn back the clock, right? Fight to get our rights back. Mistakes were made. And again, I love the NRA. Don't This is not NRA bashing. It's not about that. But it's a painful history. But you need to know it. You need to know it. So you know what we're, why we're here, what we're doing, what mistakes were made, and what we're trying to fight for to correct. And that's exactly what it was. But it didn't end there, by the way. Because also in the 30s came the infamous 1934 Machine Gun Act, the 1934 NFA, National Firearms Act. And here, NRA supported that too. They supported it, and they supported it because they looked at it that from a national scope, they didn't have to worry too much about pushing states to pass gun laws if they could get a national gun law in effect. And that was a radical idea, actually, because where would the federal government have even the powers to enact a federal gun law? And the only way they could come up with is taxation. And that's why, if you ever wondered why ATF was part of Treasury, and why you have to pay a $200 tax, because this law was enacted utilizing at the time the federal government's power of taxation. Now, I've read the original 19... 34 all the committee hearings and you might be surprised to know what the original 1934 firearms act proposed to ban it proposed to ban all handguns it banned fully automatic firearms and all semi-automatic firearms it had a magazine ban in it of 12 rounds that's right that's the original nfa and then what happened was there was through the committee hearings, and NRA did fight to remove portions of this. And we ended up with what we had today. They, they, they got rid of the handgun ban, they kept semi-autos, etc. But in the end, the National Firearm Act was supported by the NRA. And in it was not only mach you know, machine guns and sawed-off shotguns, but also short barrel rifles, right, and silencers. And what are our battles today on? Oh my God, look, we're still dealing with it, trying to get suppressors off the list as because it's for, for hearing protection, and we're battling that. We're trying now to what? Stop the pistol brace, pistol ban from taking effect. And what is that pistol brace ban? How is it going to work? Oh my gosh, they're going to put it into the 1934 short barrel rifle category, originally supported by NRA. Now, of course, vigorously opposed. Again, it's history that's painful, but you need to know it. And that's its origins, okay? That's where it came from. You know, what's funny is I, I read in the American Rifleman in, in 1934, after this passed, in the original Rifleman, after... The 34 Act passed. NRA proclaimed in the Rifleman that they've solved the gun control problem for America. They've solved the gun problem for America by this wonderful new gun law that, of course, laid the framework and the foundation 
for more and more gun laws federally, including the 68 Gun Control Act, which, by the way, was also supported by the NRA and gun manufacturers even that wanted to stop the import of cheap firearms and surplus and stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right. Painful history, but true. So here we are now, and we are focused on not just getting our firearm freedom, but regaining our firearm freedom based on mistakes that were made by, we'll even say, well-intentioned individuals. But that's the battle. That is the battle. And not knowing it is foolish, and not recognizing painful history is stupid. And so I want you to know these things, and... Uh, Keep them in mind as we fight our fight for freedom, liberty, and our Second Amendment rights. When we come back, I'm going to talk more about history, which I love. History of guns, specifically. For over 30 years, attorney Evan Knappen has seen what rotten laws do to good people. That's why he's dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of America's gun owners. A fearsome courtroom litigator fighting for rights, justice, and freedom. An unrelenting gun rights spokesman tearing away at anti-gun propaganda to expose the truth. Author of six best-selling books on gun rights, including Knappen on Gun Law, a bright orange gun law Bible that sits atop the desk of virtually every lawyer, police chief, firearms dealer, and savvy gun owner. That's what made Evan Knappen America's gun lawyer. Gun laws are designed to make you a criminal. Don't become the innocent victim of a vicious anti-gun legal system. This is the guy you want on your side. Keep his name and number in your wallet and hope you never have to use it. But if you live, work, or travel with a firearm, the deck is already stacked against you. You can find him on the web at evannappen.com or follow the link on the Gun Lawyer resource page. Evan Knappen, America's Gun Lawyer. You're listening to Gun Lawyer with attorney Evan Knappen. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Okay, let's, uh, let's get into something I really, really love, and that is history particularly history of firearms. But before we talk about historic guns and great guns, uh, I want you to be aware of the importance of supporting Gun Lawyer. So please subscribe. Please have your friends subscribe. Uh, it is vital for us to keep this ability to communicate open. And as you can see, a lot of the things that uh, I bring up on Gun Lawyer are the first time that it actually gets into the public uh, ether at all. And I'm very proud to say that many times the things we talk about on the show end up being picked up by many other advocates and, uh, and others that, uh, that, that get the message out. And that's the point of it. It really lights up our network and... Uh, and I'm proud of that very much so because it makes a huge difference in battling the suppression that uh, that they're doing to us or routinely 
trying to uh, suppress us and uh, and this is a way of combating and that's why I do it so when it comes to history of firearms now this is a fun stuff I mean I, I love practice of gun law I love helping uh, keeping law-abiding citizens law-abiding and defending uh, what I call law-abiding criminals when the ridiculous gun laws uh, try to turn great folks into felons and worse but the other thing is I just don't do that I, I am part of and have a love of firearms as I'm sure most of you listening do it's a passion and uh, you know I, uh, I have to strictly limit myself I find I, I'm interested only in a very limited area it has to shoot or cut for me to like it that's it super narrow if it shoots or cuts I like it and what I really like is um, the history and there's different aspects of history of firearms now one aspect of the history of firearms is firearm specific to one specific type of firearm where you can establish its pedigree you can show the providence of its ownership so of course guns like that are really cool because you know they're they were owned and utilized by a famous person and that's really neat and then on the other side is just the history of the firearm itself that model that type that firearm and its role as a firearm of its design in in history the role that that firearm played just generally and so let's talk first about the providence type firearm the firearm that has a, a, a owner behind it that is uh, at some point in the past that was famous and just recently a gun collection that was owned by a Texas A&M professor uh, that gun collection uh, apparently netted um, about 12 million dollars not bad for a college professor to uh, accumulate a 12 million dollar uh, gun collection now what makes this gun collection so so amazing is listen to the guns that this uh, this fellow had uh, collected okay it, it's the collection of Jim and Teresa Earl and over 50 years Earl uh, who was an engineering professor at A&M um, he was uh, apparently named legend of Aggie land in 2000 you know cool guy anyway uh, one of the guns uh, in there was the gun that was actually used to kill Billy the kid the actual gun that shot Billy the kid and um, that gun went for over six million dollars by itself I think that's a record for the highest priced firearm uh, ever sold I believe so that's pretty cool but you you know if you owned Bill the gun that killed Billy the kid you'd probably say well that's uh, hard to have anything else that could even come close but actually his collection is pretty outstanding although that is the most outstanding and amazing piece in his in this in his collection 
but he also had the shotgun used by Billy the Kid to kill the deputy when he made his escape in New Mexico. Okay, and you know, remember that great scene where he, you know, shoots, uh, hey, Bob, right? And he blows Bob away and he makes that great escape with the shotgun. Well, that went for just a hair under a million dollars, like 978000 for that shotgun. Then there's a uh, revolver that uh, in this collection, and that was used by John Selman to shoot John Wesley Harden at the Acme Saloon in El Paso. Another amazingly providenced gun. And, you know, John Wesley Harden was quite the pistol hero. Many, many consider him to be the old, the absolute best. And uh, that gun went for about $858,000 for the gun that shot John Wesley Harden. But not to be uh, belittled here, but uh, John Wesley Harden's gun used in that same shootout, well, that one went for 625000 So you got both guns on the shootout, Selman's and Hart. I mean, this is an amazing collection. It's just mind-boggling, right? Also part of it was Wild Bill Hickok's Springfield Rifle. And that went for slightly under half a million, 475000 And then a revolver once owned by Bat Masterson. And that went for 375000 So, holy cow, what an amazing collection of providential firearms owned, you know, with just an, an amazing history there. And guns like that are just fascinating. They really are. And, you know, the exploits that may have occurred with them, and we can talk about, you know, whether that was good or bad, but it's still history. And it's amazing that that firearm has been able to remain not only physically here in modern day but also that we know that it's the gun that was that in other words the proof the pedigree the demonstration that this was in fact these very firearms makes it incredibly interesting and, and i tell you when i got my start and i was clerking uh the law clerk benson and kate's the first firearm law firm in america one of the things that uh, the firm did was assist uh, christie's arms and armor and I had the pleasure of going there to uh, look at the firearms and the books and look at legal issues and whatever at Christie's. And I was like, oh my God, kid in a candy store just to see this stuff. But one of the things that was there at the time was Winston Churchill's broom handle Mauser from the Boer Wars. Documented Providence, you know, and I got to hold in my hand, you know. Winston Churchill's broom handle. I mean, it's just the history that you hold in your hand. Ah, just awesome. Great stuff. So this is the kind of thing that's really exciting and fun. But, you know, the history of guns isn't just providential guns that can be traced <clears throat> to its original owners or owners that became infamous, but also the gun themselves. So there are historic firearms that when you shoot them, you're living history. You're shooting and experiencing the history. So 
let's jump forward to say World War II. I mean, if if you have a M1 Grand rifle, if you ever fired M1 Grand, then you know you're shooting. You know, Patton called the greatest battle rifle ever devised, etc. You know that that feeling of knowing, hey, this is what our soldiers used in World War II, and experience the firing of it. You're you're living that history and feeling that history just from having that firearm and using it. Same with, you know, M1 carbines and all the great guns. And not just, of course, World War II. I'm just talking about World War II guns. But, you know, it's great historic firearms all throughout. And then not only in the use of the firearm is it such a pleasure and such a thrill to just hold that history in your hands, but there's collectability and history to understanding the firearms themselves. <clears throat> like just an example, let's take the M1 carbine, for example. So we know the wonderful history of the M1 carbine, right, and used in World War II and used in Korea and or even in Vietnam. And the M1 carbine, though, of World War II was made by a number of different makers, of course, Winchester was one of them, but one of the other makers, because remember, we had to convert our manufacturing into guns, and uh, there's an M1 carbine made at the time. They're, they made a, 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 a thousands of them by IBM. That's right, IBM, the computer company. At the time, they were international business machine. And I, so you can actually get a carbine made by IBM, firearm made by IBM. I don't think you're going to find that at like Best Buy in the computer aisle, you know. But there it is. And you're holding this and saying, wow, here's a gun made by IBM. And to help win the war in World War II. And it wasn't just IBM and M1 car. There's also Rockola. Rockola, the jukebox company. I mean, the, the word rock and roll apparently even comes from Rockola. You know, the, the, the word Rockola and their music uh, jukebox existed even before rock and roll. So it became associated with it. And here you have a jukebox company making carbines. And you acquire like a Rockola M1 carbine. And think about just how fascinating that is, right? These businesses converted that never made anything having to do with guns, and here they are making firearms to win the war. So there's that aspect of the history that exists and is really a pleasure. And there's so many firearms out there that have historical significance in either their use or people that use models like it and made them famous. And uh, just getting out there to the range and or just holding them in your hands and knowing and feeling that history is the opposite of the painful history. It's the pleasurable part of history. So look, when it comes to history, we got to know the painful history. We got to appreciate that as well as the pleasurable part of history and the embracing of all our history. And that's really the key. And firearms have always been a part of American history. And so it goes hand in hand. And it's that appreciation that I wanted to uh, 
share with you today. And this is uh, Evan Knappen reminding you that uh, gun laws do not protect honest citizens from criminals. They protect criminals from honest citizens. Gun Lawyer is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Reach us by emailing evan at gun.lawyer. The information and opinions in this broadcast do not constitute legal advice. Consult a licensed attorney in your state.